Hello and welcome. You're listening to the Safety and Health Podcast by SHP. I'm your host, Ian Hart, and I'm the editor of SHP. On this episode, we're going to hear from Matt Bertels, Principal Ergonomics Consultant at HSE's Science and Research Centre, about the different approaches to managing the risks associated with musculoskeletal disorders. The audio is an extract from a recent SHP webinar, the full recording of which is available on demand via the link in the episode description. Over the course of this episode, we're going to look at why MSDs are important, the various prevalence rates across the UK, what you can do within your own organisation, and the risk management process surrounding MSDs. Let's join the session with Matt looking at why we do handling assessments, including the financial risk posed to businesses who don't tackle the issue head on. We've been talking about MSDs around 75 years ago. We started in the UK to look at musculoskeletal disorders, and dubiously they're still around and still a perennial problem. And so the first question is, why bother? Why is there such a big deal for you guys as health and safety practitioners, for us as regulators and any organisation really who's doing any activity? And there are three reasons that we take to senior managers to justify musculoskeletal disorders. And these are the legal, the moral and the financial reasonings, those justifications for being proactive about musculoskeletal disorders. Legal issues are fine. We quite well understand those. I'm sitting behind HSE logo and there are regulations that we want to comply with. There's a duty of care, of course, but also on the legal side and an argument that we've not been involved in for much at all over the years is that compliance claims mitigation where people do put in a claim for sustaining injury. It's really important to have a good system in place to demonstrate that you've been doing what you're accountable for. You've been managing the risk and going through due diligence. And thankfully, in both circumstances, risk management for musculoskeletal disorders looks exactly the same, whether it's for compliance or for claims mitigation and claims control is a very, very similar process. The only difference, I guess, really being for our side of the fence, for regulators, it's actually a little bit simpler, perhaps. We would ask you to do training and make sure that workforce are aware of any risks that they're being exposed to. And claims mitigation, you then get them to sign against that training to make sure you've got a record of them having done it. So that legal side of the argument, there's also the moral side of the argument. And actually, this is perhaps easier to get across because we all have that desire to not cause injury or accidents for our undertaking. We want people to start work and end work with the equals kind of health, if not end the shift or end the day's work, even healthier than when they came in the morning. And there's the argument that we don't want to hurt people. Or the other side of that, if you yourself have sustained a musculoskeletal disorder, or the common first to have bad bikes, for example, did you enjoy that experience? And of course, not. it's a very negative human experience. Being in pain is something that we've evolved to avoid and would certainly want our systems to replicate that human desire. Over the last 20 years, a few points to draw here. First of all, that line which shows MSC prevalence is going down gradually. And there has been a significant reduction of MSD prevalence in our workforce over the last 20 years. That's accounting for the potential for us losing jobs out of you know, manufacturing occupations, for example. This is accounting for all that. This is a significant and real reduction in aches and pains amongst our workforce. And while I suppose we're all to be congratulated for this, that's you guys, the health and safety practitioners who've been doing the assessments, doing the risk controls, reducing the risk exposures. It works gradually, but it does have a positive impact. It does drive down those figures for UK PLC in this case, but for whatever sector you're in, it is certainly worthwhile doing. It is a cost effective to do. 
Do these tools actually work? Well, there's one interesting point, and that's the uptick you can see in 2006-7, where we get a sudden increase in prevalence rates, in part due to a number of things. Just before then, 2004 and 5, and then 2005-6, was the launch of the MAC tool. And the MAC tool itself is specifically designed to make manual handling risk estimates much quicker and easier. Alongside the MAC tool, we also did an awful lot of campaigning, the Better Bites campaign, if anybody is old enough to remember that, raising awareness, raising the profile of musculoskeletal disorders. And what initially happens is we do raise prevalence rates of reported incidents. Please, if you are doing some uh, work in your own workplaces, raising awareness of musculoskeletal disorders, don't let this put you off as initial response. What really is happening there is people's threshold levels are being reduced. So what they may have found yesterday acceptable and just a, one of those common aches and pains they get at work, because of the awareness raising, the more likely to just report those as incidents or near misses or injuries. So you do often get a peak in reporting before then it starts to drive down. It's a good thing, not a bad thing, because it means you can identify those high-risk tasks, assess and reduce those risks. But it's probably a terrifying thing if at your next senior management meeting you show the graphs are going in the wrong direction. But we do know that happens. There's lots of research on this, and it is to be expected. It also demonstrates that those interventions are working. As you can see, over the last 20 years, we've been driving down the figures, and this is largely due to the MAC tool and the art tool being used by you guys in the workplaces. On the financial side of this, a few bullet points. Look, we know that musculoskeletal disorders are ubiquitous and very, very common. About 30% of all work-related ill health and 27% of sickness absence is due to musculoskeletal disorders. It takes up an awful lot of time in the UK, and one of the reasons it takes up an awful lot of time is because of the amount of time we have off work when we sustain an injury. About 11 days on average with back pain, on average 21 days with the balloon disorders. That talks to the moral side of this as well, because imagine 11 days off work for starters. Well, immediately my mind goes to a sun lounger somewhere, maybe a cold glass of San Miguel or the lagers are available, and using our beach towels to buy over the best lounger space. That's not what we're talking about here. There's no coconut smelling oils involved. This is you in front of the television, watching daytime TV, whatever people are selling from their attics or wherever it may be, with a cold cup of coffee and with very little social support, all that crack you get with your work colleagues, that's all gone. And you've got daytime TV and maybe some kids at three o'clock coming home from after school to annoy you instead of all that very positive interaction with colleagues. These aren't positive life events, and the link with depression with long-term sickness absence is really quite strong, especially when musculoskeletal disorders affecting people's ability to sleep at night. That link's strong and quite difficult to undo. And so for numerous reasons, we'd always suggest that if you do sustain a, an injury, the best place you can be is in work. Not perhaps doing your full duties or the same duties you were doing beforehand, but just the activity of getting up in the morning, going to work, is actually beneficial to your health. And so we want to drive those figures down, not so it looks better on your riddles, but just because that's the best thing to do for the individual who's sustained an injury. And then the final bullet point here is really about the overall cost to the employer. For significant events that result in over seven days of sickness absence with musculoskeletal disorders or other health events, the average cost to the employer is around £9,300 per incident. So when you're doing your kind of back of envelope 
calculations, looking at return on investment, is it worth getting solutions in place, spending a bit of money to change the lines, get some mechanical aids in place to help with manual handling, for example? Well, on one side is the cost, and the costs nearly always seen as, a, as an overhead. But on the other side, you can use this £9,000 per incident as a decent estimation to start thinking, well, if we can reduce the number of incidents per year that we have on this part of the plant by, say, two, then we'll save £18,000 a year. You can use that against your overhead costs of putting a different system in place as that kind of return on investment, I'll say calculator, but that's a loose term of calculator, certainly an estimation. They come from our websites and it's well worth bearing those in mind to help justify spending a bit of money up front and turning costs spent on health and safety into an investment, turning it away from an overhead. Those costs, though, will be very variable. And of course, it will be dependent on your industry and your sector and on your workplace. So uh, do treat them as an estimation, but do also have an attempt to consider how much money you would save by reducing risk, reducing exposure and reducing injuries. They're never going to be perfect. There's lots of guidance on how to do this on our website. But no matter how eloquent the equation is that you use, they're all going to be estimations. And to be honest, you doing calculations on return on investment is probably not time well spent for you. Far better to work out where the solutions can be used because that's where you have the real benefits as health and safety practitioners. What's the approach to musculoskeletal disorders risk management? Well, it's here in five quite easy steps, to be honest. And this is taken from L23, the Manual Handling Operations Regulations Guidance. It talks in there about, first of all, identify the high-risk jobs. Identify the jobs. You can do this observation through leading or lagging indicators. But actually, if you're observing, you might miss stuff. And lagging indicators are notoriously uh, too late. And so I would suggest identifying the jobs. The best thing you can do is go and buy yourself a packet of decent biscuits, have a sit down with your workforce and engage the workforce. Have that discussion with the people on the lines, in the plant, doing the job, in the vehicles or whomever it may be, and ask them what's the worst part of their job. What's the bit that they hate? What's the bit that they'd rather try and avoid if they could? Let them identify those high risk activities with you and get that engagement early in this process. Once you've identified those rubbish jobs or those rubbish elements, the ones that are harder, can you avoid them is the next stage. With mechanization, automation, it's probably quite possible to avoid most things. But the big question is, is it cost effective? And those solutions can be very expensive and out of reach and not practicable for many of us most of the time. But well worth asking the question whether those jobs can be avoided. There may be simple ways of avoiding particular manual handling tasks, for example, by just leaving the damn thing there and then cording off around it. Would it be an obstruction if you just walked around it and uh, left it where it was? Sometimes that'll work, often it won't. But when it won't work, when we can't avoid those jobs, we don't panic. All we're legally required to do is assess the level of risk, assess those tasks, and that's what this is all about. Why do we do assessments? Well, there's lots of reasons why. Fundamentally, though, it's to identify and then reduce the level of risk as far as reasonably practicable. Risk reduction is where you are heroes. That's where the rubber hits the road, really, in this whole process. We don't want to spend a lot of time doing everything else. We want you to focus on risk reduction because that's where it has a tangible long-term effect in securing people's health and well-being. Don't also be put off if you can't eliminate all risk. That's fine, too. 
a lot of risk has been managed already and uh, a lot of it all we can do is to reduce risk shave off bits and pieces here make jobs a bit better a bit easier but watch that cumulative improvement over years it will have a profound effect and then the last stage of this five-stage process is manage the residual risk we can manage that risk here's where we get trainers involved especially for manual handling the manual handling trainers, we need to tell those training organizations what our residual risks are, what we couldn't get rid of, and it's their job to teach our workforces how to be exposed to that risk but in a safer way as possible. That's where some technique training comes in. That's where sharing knowledge on the residual risks comes in, which will be part of the training. All too often, this process is replaced by just training. Lots of manual handling injuries, let's get the trainers in. Actually, training has got definitely a part to play. It should be at the end of this process, not instead of this process. So, Similarly with management, if we are exposing people to quite significant levels of risk, that's where we can have increased sort of indicators just to keep an eye on the workforce who are being exposed and just tell us early on whether further intervention and further support is required to help them manage those risks. And the reason for showing you that is really just to justify and identify that the key part of it for you guys as health and safety practitioners is in the assessment. This is where we'll spend a lot of our time running a lot of assessments, especially if we're looking at week-long exposures for people. But you'll be doing an awful lot of assessments. We want to make that as quick and as efficient as possible so that you can gather the information, share the information, use it to prioritize appropriately, and then quickly get on to risk reduction, which is where we all turn into heroes and we prevent and avoid injury. Some really great tips and information from Matt, which hopefully you found useful. As I mentioned at the beginning of this episode, you can access the full webinar from which the audio came from via the link in the episode description. Matt was joined on the panel by Holly Stocks from the HSE and Carl Whitman from TSO. In the session, you will hear a full demonstration of how to use the HSE's Mac Digital tool to log assessments and receive access to various publications on specific guidance, as well as hearing the panel answering audience questions. I'd like to thank Matt, Carl and Holly for appearing on this webinar, to the HSE and TSO for working with us on the session and to you for joining us. If you're new to the Safety and Health podcast, please do go back and check out our previous episodes. Last time out, we were joined by both IOSH President Louise Hosking and Immediate Past President Jimmy Quinn to discuss overcoming the challenges of the last 12 months and to look ahead to what's in store for 2022. You can find the link to the podcast hub where all of our previous episodes are hosted in the description of this episode. If you like what you hear, you can follow the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts from. We are also available on your smart speaker. Simply ask to play the Safety and Health podcast. We'd be really grateful if you could rate us and comment on your chosen platform as that will really help us to get the show out to a wider audience. Please do stay tuned to shponline.co.uk for the very latest health and safety news where you can also sign up to our daily e-newsletter. Thank you very much for listening and see you on the next episode. Music